This is Kara Marsicano with UNCW's Behind the Curtain podcast. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Trey Cotton, UNCW graduate, actor, teacher, and dialect coach. Trey's most recent and most celebrated work as a dialect coach was on the film One Night in Miami, a feature that explores the friendships of Cassius Clay, soon to be renamed as Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X, as the four friends discuss their roles in the developing civil rights movement. How's it going, Kara? Good. How are you doing? You know, I can't complain. Uh, I can't complain. I'm in sunny British Columbia, um, North Vancouver Island, specifically. Um, wow. And I just saw some eagles swoop by. And, you know, I'm surrounded by mountains and oceans. And, you know, so I feel fairly blessed. That sounds dreamy. Yeah, it was, you know, North Carolina is pretty in itself. So I, I kind of grew up spoiled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So thank, I'm so glad that you, you had me in this virtual space and to be connecting virtually. It's exciting. 2021. When I was doing a little bit of research into your background, I listened to the next semester podcast and they covered a mm-hmm. lot of your background, which was great. But I was wondering if you could give a little bit of a recap as far as where you started. From what I understand, you started playing basketball at UNCW and then made your way. Yeah, well, I, um, God, where I started, where I started, honestly, was Johnson County Schools. Uh, I, I grew up in Clayton, North Carolina. And where it started for me were with, was definitely with my parents who went to HBCUs and growing up, going to all the camps, but also having a love for sports and, and finding my identity as a young Black and Native kid trying to find his identity not only in a Southern community, but within the Black community. And sports is where I gravitated. And then basketball, everybody started telling me that I was kind of good. So I said, okay, we'll go with it. And then in school, basketball took over a thing of its own. I ended up going to prep school, ended up going to Ravenscroft School. And then I, um, I started looking at schools for college and how I got to UNCW is I had transferred from North Carolina Central. And when I transferred from North Carolina Central, I had had every intention with playing basketball, but I was kind of asking myself, well, am I like basketball was more of a tool to get me to college. For me, it was more of a catalyst. It was a chance for me to meet a lot of different cultures, traveling, playing AAU. And for me, I kind of got a loss for the taste of how athletes were treated. And I I wanted to prove that I can do something the most intellectual to contrast. Oddly enough, I did one of the graduation speeches at Ravenscroft and I had challenged the athletes kind of around that, that time I was at UNC Wilmington. They asked me to come back and speak and challenge the athletes. What are they going to do when the ball stops bouncing? But I had to ask myself the same thing. And so <laughs> life gives you so many things. And I, I tore my ACL, MCL and meniscus in, <clears throat> in the, um, the rec center at UNCW. Oh, wow. And that was at a time where I was dabbling with, you know, should I continue to just pursue this or kind of let this interest go? Because I had other curiosities. And I was really aware uh, of the film industry and the arts community there because Wilmington is a lot different than the Raleigh-Durham area. And so its arts scene was really, really cool to me. And I just became curious. And then somebody asked me to be on One Tree Hills and be an extra and play basketball. And I was like, are you for real? Are you? Are you? <laughs> and I was in the rec center and I was like, okay. And then I started becoming curious. And then that led me to, to the theater community there um, because I, I wanted to figure out how I can do that, what they were doing. I just didn't know how to get there. And I found the theater and I found that that was a fundamental way to learn how to tell stories. And the theater community there really uh, took me in and answered my questions of curiosity. And then I jumped on board to become a theater major at UNCW. But before I was interested in sports psychology. And yeah, from there, I, I ended up jumping on to going to the arts building most of the time on campus. <laughs> and my journeys to class became different. And that was that within those journeys, I, I began to cross path with other students. 
you know, and that made my my circle, the people I opened my journey up to, it opened my mind up to, oh, okay, well, there are other people out there who have other journeys. I realized I had a lot of supports in my life, but I was curious as to what other dimensions were out there. And um, basketball served as a catalyst to college to where I can kind of find what my niche was and find and be exposed to other things to figure out what I was into specifically. And that was to get away from that, that um, stereotype that athletes got for one being a black male at a predominantly white school, but also being bigger than everybody else, not being a small guy and getting all the questions if you're an athlete anyway, you know, and all the facets and wanting to prove those wrong. And that kind of put me in the realm of the arts uh, because I've always respected it. I've always admired it. I just never, it never aligned to my journey. And it was one of those things where it was, I I think, um, looking back, Wilmington, specifically being in Wilmington and and its rich history and its um, beautiful community that took me in, it, it was the right place, right time. When I was into the program, there were other people in the theater program who looked like me. And I just so happened to know some of those guys. One of those guys was one of my best friends and we knew each other as basketball players. And he made his transition uh, from basketball to theater. So I had that and I had imagery and I saw people and I saw it firsthand. And I feel fairly blessed because I know that that's not all the time. You know, it comes in waves where programs may have some people of color. But when we look at the arts, you know, if we're trying to, as Shakespeare said, hold a mirror upon nature, it has to represent what that mirror looks like. And, and I was really fairly blessed to have people in that program. And one show I remember seeing, and I remember having my whole cast on my leg when I went to go see it, uh, was Our Lady of 121st Street, and Dr. Renee Vincent, uh, who had trained me, had uh, directed it, but I, it had people of color and it had, it had a flavor. And I was like, well, yo, but I realized that there were so many moving parts that, um, you know, if they didn't do that show at that time, I was a college kid. I wasn't just hopping to see every theater show at the time. That's just not what the energy I was on as a young adult. And they had that and it drew me in. And I say all that to say that if I didn't see somebody who looked like me, I don't know if I would have been able to navigate in that space or if I would have even decided I probably would have stayed with psychology or try probably would have gone with communication in some way but uh I was in a space where I'm like I'm just going to take classes in different areas just to see what I'm into because I was very aware that I was at school at the beach and that was um you know as a as a nature lover, I, I love nature. And that was, that's something that I was really aware of when I was at UNCW, I'm a school to be. That became part of my process that I discovered at UNCW is to be around nature and be around water and to create around nature and to be in that creative space. Um, and it's just one of those things where if I was at a different school, it may not have happened in that pattern. So yeah, I, Am I helping you out with the questions? Definitely. Yeah. And it's, that's really beautiful. I mean, it kind of speaks to the importance of being at the right place mm-hmm. at the right time. And, and mm-hmm. the way that there were a couple key individuals that really made it feel like a possibility for you to enter into that space. That's really, that's really amazing. And it actually, it makes me want to skip ahead to one of my questions because yeah, in some of the... <laughs> Some of the interviews that I've read or um, listened to, you've mentioned faith and your relationship mm-hmm. to church. And I'm wondering if that plays into it, like as far oh, as- Oh, you know, it does. Faith. You know, it does. I, I'm born and, and raised Church of God in Christ. And my, uh, I grew up with a father in the preacher's pulpit. And church was a huge part of, since I remember, and I remember- um, the greatest stories ever told in the most beautiful ways to move people and to move a, a culture of people where 
our religion was taken and our language was taken, but we still found a language to find our creator, despite it all. And I've taken those elements and I, I've been able to take that along my journey because, um, and that goes back to my upbringing. My parents raised me to be open to everybody, but also not just be a regular preacher's kid. You know, for my sister and I, because I have an older sister, for us to be open to learning about how other people believe things. And that's something that when I got to UNCW, I was able to intake a different form of how people took their faith because I was around a lot of white folks, you know, but I, I, I come from a belief where the word is the word wherever you go and finding that common thread of humanity and that branched me and helped me out along my journey as I started to learn about other religions and other people that I didn't meet from Johnston County because thankfully through sports and through other outlets that my parents exposed my sister and I we were able to meet people who didn't look like us. And from there, as a kid, you're gonna become curious. And I, I found myself feeding that curiosity. And I, I think I was just the kind of kid to kind of just look it up myself. And, and I know now as an adult, I learned that often I couldn't trust the, the filter of information that was given to me. So then how did you transition into into dialect coaching? When I graduated from UNCW, I immediately went to graduate school um, because I was blessed to work professionally while I was at UNCW. So um, the program, the University of Washington School of Drama, they, they thought I was uh, fit enough to join this ensemble of actors that they did from auditions around the world. And from there, I was exposed to, on the West Coast, so many different cultures that I'm, I wasn't used to on the East Coast, better yet in the South, the Southeast. And from there, it led my work after graduate school to Vancouver as an actor. And then I ended up in dialect coaching because I didn't see a dialect coach who looked like me. And I, I came to realize that throughout my education that I was given a curriculum that not a lot of people have the opportunity to be given at all, particular people who uh, are the global majority. I'm learning that new term now. There, there are like a thousand new terms, Kara, and global majority is like the newest one. I'm like, okay. Hmm. When we look at who goes into the acting market, not everybody goes to a program. Uh, and we get specifically the markets in the South. We get Atlanta. Atlanta was already there. Wilmington was there. New Orleans was there, even on the East Coast. So a lot of um, Black folks may not be able to go to college for so many reasons that I don't know if we have time to point out today, but they go straight into the market. So they don't get this curriculum that, for one, a lot of people across the pond in England have as a foundation of their curriculum. For one, the English sound, there's so many... You go down the street in England and you hear a different dialect as well. So their ear is just as tuned as, as we are, but they have that in their education. But then there's more. When you get with drama programs, the arts is subjective. So we're, we're basing things on opinions. At the University of Washington, I experienced more diversity in a class setting than I did in my whole life outside of when I was at a historically Black college. And those weren't just Black folks. Those are people from Egypt. Those are people who spoke Spanish, who were native Spanish people from California. Those are people that I read about their cultures. And it opened up my mind of like, oh, okay. It's a, one about opinions, but now not every school gives the information of phonetics specifically. So the percentages become smaller and smaller and smaller as to who gets this curriculum. And I found that I, I was fortunate to have that. And I, um, luckily, my mother's a teacher, my dad's a preacher, and teaching is in my bones. But also, I fine-tune that training with an MFA in acting. And with my, my bachelor's in theater and all this education and training I've had and decolonizing of things that I've had to undo from techniques that haven't worked with me, 
um, culturally. And through that, I've come up with my own pedagogy of teaching and how I approach my teaching. And that I can touch in on that. And that starts with meeting every, every storyteller with where they're at, because we all have different learning styles. And that's for me, that's rooted in just my experience as a, as a student of color a lot in a lot of, a lot of rooms and in a lot of the spaces I've had to achieve in. And yeah, it, it's, it's having to navigate, uh, navigate that is that strand that I've been able to apply and any student knows what works for them and what doesn't work and answering the questions of, okay, what would I have liked to be done to me when I was at this certain age or certain, and I try to approach that with each, with each student and each uh, storyteller, no matter what age they are and meet them where they're at. So that's something I've learned along my journey, but that's something that helps me with dialect coaching. And it's wheeled me from acting with the foundation of having my training in acting, but also having my training in linguistics and, and phonetics and accents and having an idiolects, but also being trained in dramaturgy. And, and I, I recognize my teaching as for dialect coaching is to be acting on steroids because whenever we're working with storytelling, dialects must be in a foundation of truth with the story in the given circumstance. And that's, that's often I find myself sharing that in spaces because it's a bit deeper. The iceberg goes a bit deeper with the craft. And that's what, what helps us believe it takes us from one place to another or it takes us back in time or it, it helps our imagination. It's a beautiful thing about the phonetics, how vowels can literally shift or consonants can shift and take us, simply take us there or make us feel like we're at home. When I was introduced to the pentatonic scale and all the scales of that language and, and world, what were the other scales going on around the world? What was the scale going on for my folks? Because in that education of learning Shakespeare, I only saw four roles that I can possibly fit in out of this whole canon, only four. So I had to figure out how do I navigate in this space, even though I still love this language because he's a brilliant storyteller, but how do I find my humanity in that? And I found that culturally, my, my training and my upbringing in the gospel church has always been my wheelhouse that I've definitely gone to. But when I've performed professionally in Shakespeare, I found myself channeling the same spirit of, of, of ministering of that's also rooted back all the way to African griots and in scat singing and in so many strands of what this culture has given to the world. And so I found that, oh, that's there. But then there's a common thing that I also found interesting is that I, and oftentimes a lot of people of color in that setting, never get asked how we hear it first. And in asking myself, well, how do I hear it? I started to feel things unraveling and see things make sense. And then I started to look at the Bible and realize all these hymns, this is older text than Shakespeare. Why am I having trouble with, with this? Like, I grew up with older texts than Shakespeare, and that moved me to say, okay, I'm valid in this space because I've been told so. And as an educator now, I realize that not many people are told that. And uh, I, I see the bit of the work that I'm doing is not reinventing the wheel, but redirecting it and re-including people in, into the work. And that's what I, um, I believe that decolonization work is, but also that it can be accessible and it can be present. And that's also a bit of the work that I want to do as far as um, making sure that, for one, we have a community at UNCW for alumni as well. And alumni has a space where we, especially, specifically um, the global majority alumni, where we can give a space to mentor and help the other people and continue to open the doors that were open for us, like myself. 
uh, Carl Kennedy, another alumni of UNCW, went to U University of Washington just like I did. And he opened doors and gave the call to U University of Washington to get me in to just be seen. And he, he's done that. So it's my job to do that. And it's been done, but also it, it should be done more. And that's a bit of my effort, as well as making sure that there's a stronger bond between the UNCW theater community and arts community and the Wilmington community. While at UNCW, where I'd like to improve that, um, of things that I brought to attention as I, as I graduated, I got a lot of, um, it didn't sit well uh, to the point where I was on academic probation because I didn't want to choose roles that I feel didn't suit my education. And I wanted to make sure I waited for the roles that I did like Pippin and Six Degrees of Separation, but I didn't just want to play any other role. It sounds like you <clears throat> were able to find a space and that you are now turning around to create more space for upcoming mm -hmm. actors. And yes, that's, that's really beautiful. Um, well, one space that actually I, I do need to um, do give credit that the, the, the people of color in that space helped foster and encouraged me and pushed me and supported me in a really important time. And that was at, at the Upperman Center on mm -hmm. campus um, with um, recently passed away um, not too long ago, um, Ted, uh, Dr. Ted McFadden who used to run the Upperman Center, he was a huge, huge, and I definitely get emotional thinking about it because he's a huge supporter of my work. And he sent me, when I went to graduate school, he sent me an original playbill of Paul Robeson, his Othello, his definitive Othello, that he did on Broadway. And those are key people in the Upperman Center because I was given a space where I felt seen. Mm. And immediately for me, coming from a historically black college, it's jaggering uh, coming into spaces. Uh, for one, coming in when some of my credits weren't even allowed to the university, feeling that, and then going to Upperman Center and meeting people and meeting people who look like me, but also having cousins who went to the university and saying, go to the Upperman Center. You know, I don't recognize that as only a safe space, but a brave space. And that's a space at UNCW that should be kept and honored and, and given all the resources that they need, because that's something that was pivotal when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, but having people you know, there's something about being on stage and the lights are there. You can tell, you can still tell who looks like you in the audience. Mm. And in being in college, having that, being in so many spaces where even in the theater department, in the arts building, there weren't many people who looked like me, you know, because when I changed my major, all my buddies were graduated, you know, and but to see people come out and support me, you know, because at UNCW, I was the guy they, you know, they put space on the website. That was me. That was, I was putting all the stuff. I was that. And, and to be supported and to be supported in this thing that was so new to me, but to have a space at the Upperman Center where, where they believed in the, the dreams I was having in the, and supported me and supported the shows that I was doing and the monologues that I wanted to try out. And it was a space where, you know, Todd McFadden and um, uh, Kimberly there, I think she's still there. Uh, they, they really believed um, in, in this fire that I had. It's spaces like those that helped me get through UNCW. I don't know how things would have went if I didn't find the Upperman Center. I don't know how to, I would have navigated going from class to class if I didn't make sure my journey from the beginning of the day didn't go through Upperman Center at some point. Um, and, and I say that to say that's part of the work as well, is making sure that these spaces are there for, 
for 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 students and so many students to and I met so many people who weren't um, or who didn't identify themselves with color and they were still there and it was just a space where it was really relaxed now this is coming from a guy who goes from there to the theater department where everybody is really themselves yeah you know but this is me um, as an athlete at the time I was very new to theater. I didn't really, I, I was, <laughs> I was like, ah! I wasn't sure about the energy yet. Okay. But then I came to learn that it's a safe space where I can be myself as well. And I saw the other students saw me make this transition in my life as well and saw me become curious in theater and doing it. And they became curious and they started seeing shows and I started to see this thing grow and, and, you became a catalyst in a way too. We have had no choice to do nothing but in order to continue on um, and to make it about community and family. Before I did one night in Miami, I was in North Carolina. You know, I was in Clayton with my family. And that was the last time I was in North Carolina. Wow. You know, it was the pandemic. Um, because before then we went to New Orleans to film. And then from there I went to do some work in New Zealand. And then I started hearing some noise about this virus going on in North America and not in the Southern Hemisphere where I was. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I got to figure my stuff out. Home. <laughs> you know, yeah. How would you, how would you even begin to coach somebody in a dialect? Like if I were an actor or mm. just anybody, where does it even begin? Well, it, it one, it begins with the story at hand, but also it begins with your, your authentic sound and how you naturally sound. Because when we, um, we get with specifics, one night in Miami, we particularly work with idiolects. And now we're working with two different human beings from two different places, with two different natural voices where the muscle naturally is. And how does one voice one sound get to the other so for example with uh i can talk about cassius clay and as at the time cassius clay as we know is muhammad ali and i get chills just speaking um uh, muhammad ali's name and because that's somebody who is one of the most recognizable sounds and voices <laughs> you know um so we had to approach it as a black man from Louisville, Kentucky, and approach it um, geographically, and approach it and honor where he he was, and honor that he was an individual. Thankfully, with the script and with the vision of, of Regina King and the vision of the actors, they wanted that to honor that authenticity as well, to be true to who we were, so we can respectfully create. Um, lightning in a bottle to do it in a respectful way so it, it has a foundation that can be seen and heard with substance but also represent real folks from real places and that goes with honoring the sounds of the south general the general sounds of how we sound as a people but also what what that's rooted in you know a lot of the southern phrases are rooted in British influence because of this the South's history. So we have to approach it in all, all facets. And then luckily with Cash's play, he, <laughs> he literally put out an album about how he was going to beat Sonny Liston before the fight. <laughs> Clay. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. Like, li like literally. So we, we get now trying to capture lightning in a bottle, and that's, okay, where was he at this point in time? Where was his voice at this point in time? Maturity-wise, um, because someone's voice at the age of 70 would be different than the age of 18 or 22 as Cassius says, and where do we 
capture that, but also honor the, the decade of the time because the 60s had a specific type of language with different phrases and different, it had a different bop to it. <laughs> and, and so when we approach that, we have to now consider and open up everything to figure out how to build the sound of the character. And that's, that's, that structure is how I like to break it down and approach with each, with each artist of saying, okay, where's this person from, but also meeting their sound where they're at. So we can do this in a healthy way because we're working with muscles. And now we have to understand how to use that muscle, but to keep it strong and to, to definitely uh, be able to transition into the sound, but also transition away from the sound because we are still working with the muscle and we don't want to injure that muscle. And when we get with things such as, you know, we work with any contract, there's time, there's money, all that stuff that the last thing you want is an injured voice. You know, but you want to be able to still be a person from the South and still be in this emotional state and have consistency and have to be able to yell in a healthy way and still do it and still embody this person. But often in acting, when there are times of emotion, that's when often the dialect can go away. How can we still maintain that foundation of sound to where it's built and in the process, it's built and this muscle is strengthened. Like Cassius Clay, for example, the actor Eli Gray, let me know that he wanted to be able to be on set and be in, in Cassius's sound and to stay consistent. Mm. You know, and that's something that, you know, you can look, look at the interviews and some interviews I was like, yo, I didn't know you did that interview. And, he did it in Cassius of Sound. Wow. But my job was to help him transition from a guy from Nova Scotia, Halifax, Nova Scotia, to a guy from Louisville, Kentucky, you know, and how to do that, but also transition. And at the end of the day, be able to safely do that for the next day, because we only have a certain amount of hours to really take care of our voice. Because shoots can be crazy and it all depends on the beast of what the project is. And we have to make sure my job is to make sure the actor is prepared in that. And I know that from being an actor. So then do you, would it, would it look like, what would it look like? Would, would you sit down together and would you maybe, would he have exercises to go through? It depends on how much time we have. Mm. Uh, often uh, with, with film projects, you put on a time. And for example, I had a different time with Cassius Clay and with uh, Sam Cooke and working with Leslie Odom Jr. We had two weeks, you know, and I had met Leslie during the table read. And that's where uh, our work started from there. And it depends kind of, it's all a moving dance. Normally I would start with the story at hand and what's actually needed and what specifically is needed um, because there are often where you want to do a, an accent. Well, there's this thing with the neutral American or general American sound where when it was started, it wasn't really based on a specific people to begin with. And that's where I like to start, Idiolex. And I found that to be a really, really authentic way to include people when we're talking about stories of color and accents of color, finding real people and representing the unvoiced and representing the people who haven't been spoken and, and finding what their natural sound is. And I, I've learned that uh, we get North Carolina, there's so many different ways people speak, but within different communities, there's so many different dialects within the Spanish community. There's so many different dialects in the South, you know, with the words. So we all don't sound the same. And the people in the South were really particular about that. <laughs> and we take pride in that. And because of that, I find it beneficial to honor that in the work. And, and that's something where um, we get into sociolinguistics and representing uh, people. And that's a bit of the work that I do is as well that I believe to be the work on my end. How can we represent 
the voices as we continue to tell stories and recreate history, how, how can we continue to authentically represent those voices accurately? And um, it's this crazy thing about Idiolex. It doesn't matter whether they're a famous person or not. They're still a person. And any storyteller should consider that when they're creating people and they're thinking about accents and dialects. Every actor, and I, I definitely suggest every actor to be their own dramaturg, to, to be as heavy into their research. The, some of the best actors I admire do their research, but that's the same with dialects as well. Mm. And finding that, that foundation of, okay, what is the cadence? What is the, what is the timbre? Answer all the questions that uh, specifically are at hand because it must fit the direction. It must fit what the director is asking for. Because if it's still a different vision than the the director, (laughs) then you have a problem. So it's so many moving parts of how can we still fit into this world of sound of this time of specific space. One Night in Miami was a situation where a lot of my work is when they're on set and off set, before they get to production, but also when they're working with their hair and when they're getting their makeup, I'm still working with them. And to see people who look like me in that space, it was a beautiful thing, but it let me know what is possible. We see the result. We see the result that the film had started from this independent film that we're filming down in New Orleans um, before Amazon even picked it up. And, <laughs> but we all knew once Regina King was on it, we knew. We, yeah. If Regina King is on it, you know, uh, because I, I respected her, her work greatly. And she has believed in my work and opened doors. And during one night in Miami, uh, I was put in a space where each day somebody different told me that I was the first person to look like me doing what I do. And it was really so many feelings uh, came. But what I left with was a sense of responsibility that myself and a select few of other dialect coaches of color around the world have been given this curriculum uh, to spread the knowledge. And that's, you know, it's all about knowledge is power, you know, for a storyteller to be able to have more than one tools to tell a story in different ways in many different ways it's liberating and it could help heal a lot of pain out there because uh, if we look at one thing that we've done as human beings is tell stories you know that's you know we get stories told every time we go to class or I tell stories every time I'm teaching you know it's a cycle it's a it's a consistent melody that has melodies within it and so um, to get back to the, the coaching of approaching the sound, I have to approach it for one as a human being of, okay, how does each human being get their imagination to a space where they can create and be in a, a safe and brave space to be able to create? And I ask every artist to trust me with the imagination because working with, whether it be accents, dialects, or idiolects, the imagination is a huge part and it's believing, but also hearing the sound as well. I can uh, share something about working with the character Sam Cook is we found that through harmonization and, and working with different harmonic structures is a way of how you can access the sound from Leslie Odom Jr.'s voice to Sam Cook's voice and using the language of music to its benefit because Sam Cooke gave us that music. So it, it all, when working with accents and dialects, it all depends on what's being asked because it, it could be where like Black Panther, it wasn't a specific place in Africa, but it's an imagined place. Right now I'm working on a, a project that goes back in history, but we're representing sounds that people haven't, well, haven't been represented on television before. And it's being imagined. And it, and that's where it's a form of design. And it's a form of sound design on my end. And I liken it 
a lot to working with fonts and the different styles of fonts. And I believe that to be very parallel in, in the work that I've been doing. Oh. So yeah, it's all coding. It's all coding, Kara. That's interesting. Yeah, really? yeah. Well, um, you you take this. You you take a vowel. You take to be or not to be. That is the question. Or actually, this the friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. We take the vowels out. Now we change the vowels that it can take us to another place. We change the consonants and how we use them. For example, we take the R and we add D, D, R. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Yeah. But identifying uh, how important it is with vowels and consonants and how in language those shifts can be identified in different peoples and different uh, geographical places on the earth, right? It's some cool really stuff, isn't actually, it? That, that gave me yeah. chills. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, the, um, it's becoming really specific and attention to detail. And that's when we represent stories and new stories and educating that attention to detail makes the difference between broad strokes and fine strokes. Mm. And that makes the difference between stereotypes and full representation mm. of people. And um, I come from both communities who, who have a strong calling for that and more of that. And so when we get, I mean, for example, being a Southerner, I would hear stuff being done in the South and I'm like, doesn't sound like anybody I know. You know, but also it doesn't sound like something a person of color would say or a black person would say, you know, and that's a huge part of One Night in Miami is the writing, the brilliant writing, you know, finding the, the writer was really supportive of what I did um, and with the words and, and finding that connection of him knowing my buddy, who's the other, another UNCW grad. Um, it was one of those things where um, my journey prepared me uh, to be in that room. And, and that's, if you get anything out of this, this podcast is that, that my journey prepared me to be in that room and, and all the knowledge gained uh, prepared me. And that told me something that I could be a, a guy from Clayton, North Carolina, not a big city to be able to be working in Hollywood. And that, that's something that um, every UNCW student needs to know. Um, because I faced it, you know, going to graduate school, being worried because I'm not from this big city and I didn't have this huge theater upbringing. But I, I realized that I had so many other forms of artistic training, even sports and the arts connection with sports and also my training in, in church and my upbringing. Um, but my natural uh, yearning for storytelling culturally Tapping into that has served me, but it's prepared me to uh, be in rooms that I, I, um, I feel honored to be in and don't take lightly. So, yeah, period, period at the end of that. <laughs> I, I, I did want to also hear whatever you'd be willing to say about having to battle cancer during your if, correct me if I'm wrong, it was graduate school, right? When yeah, getting- well, it, it, um, battling that through uh, graduate school and having to navigate, continuing to battle it and things resurface after graduating. And that, that put me in the Northwest where I couldn't travel. I couldn't really afford to travel and go to these other markets um, or go to the big New Yorks because my health didn't allow so. So it put me in this space to be up in Vancouver. And and it's interesting having this perspective now, uh, to be honest, because I have a perspective as uh, someone in remission. Um, And what I can say is is this, I, I had opened my journey up to 
my battle um, just with my social media following, but also as I sought to continue to fight it with my acting career. And I had found myself on the news. I was doing Playing the Prince and Cinderella, and I was on the CBC News. Saw that. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> that's the last thing. But Kara, there was a point in my journey where I wasn't at that space to share. Mm. I wasn't that brave yet. And then something changed where I, I felt that other people needed to know something I didn't know. I didn't know that that could possibly affect me. I didn't know prostate cancer could affect somebody like me. And I, I felt that it was an, an issue all came from, you know, having what I thought were sports injuries, you know, and, and always wondering, well, what if I didn't know, you know, when I knew? What if I didn't go to get myself checked, you know, while I was in grad school? And how do I let other um, people who are going through this know that, look, you got it, you're enough. And to be honest, that's, I had no idea about anything with Chadwick Bozeman. You know, he was a big inspiration just for me. And he didn't even, I didn't even know he was battling his own fight. And I used, you know, the time I remember during Cinderella, um, I was going back and forth and getting um, treatments and doing my performances and having Black Panther there as a form of strength and watching Black Panther and, you know, knowing Chadwick Boseman, somebody from Carolina. And that's something that, you know, gave me hope. And, and that same strain of hope came from when I, I realized, you know, Paul Robeson, his dad was an escaped enslaved African from Martin County, North Carolina, which is where my family's from. Hope, seeing that example. And, and if I could do that for somebody else while I was going through whatever I was going through, I felt rather selfish for not opening up my journey. And that led me to do that. And, you know, I, I feel that there's a sense of me, I'm just now checking into the game, especially after one night in Miami. Um, and, I, you know, everything suits itself, but I, um, faith is something that got me through. The, um, the support of my family and, and my communities, uh, uh, definitely in, in, in having the theater community support me uh, and my, my faculty members at UNC, University of Washington and when I was there supported me uh, as well. And cancer is an interesting thing because it is something that you have to battle it in a sense individually, but it still takes so many other moving parts. I had to learn how to communicate and be specific as to what I needed but also I had to learn how to not play Atlas. That's when you're faced with really a lot of questions, but performing wise, it was one of the best forms of acting training I've ever had because I stopped questioning myself. Uh, I had to give energy to one specific space and I had to make a choice and I had to commit. I couldn't stay in my head. And I, I liken that to the work I'm doing as a, as a black and native man putting a focus on what Toni Morrison recognizes as making sure that the white gaze isn't the dominant one in my life because I wasn't raised as it to be the dominant one, but to make sure now how I include all of myself um, as a cancer survivor, two-time cancer survivor, and what all that looks like. And that's the work that I have to do, but I tell each person of color that that's the work that we have to do as each one of us figures ask the question of what do we do? It's the work that we can. It's something, you know, and, and that's wrapped up in my journey is figuring out how to do something. Um, because, you know, I, I'm a proud North Carolinian and I come from working folks and to be sitting and, and, and just doing nothing, it's, and you have dreams, 
if you're not working at them, they're just, it's just a bit of talk and then it blows in the wind. And so those are my efforts with the nonprofit organization um, that I have formed to foster not only myself, but alumni to be able to have a space where they can create and also develop, help develop the artists that are present in the programs because we're working in the industry and they need to see that people of color are in the industry because I'm here, you know, and I know three heavy five uh, men and women of color, a theater alumni at UNCW that they should have already contacted by now. But seeing that I really heard from you and the next semester podcasts, I think there's some work to be done, you know, and that's, that's something that I, I'm more than willing to do. Yeah. So uh, this has been a really, 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 really uh, lovely talk. Uh, and I hope I covered everything that that you're you're looking for in the podcast I think that you did yeah I really really appreciate it uh, I think these times are leading us to definitely explore all of our humanity absolutely I to explore all those questions of you know who are we and what are we about the truth in the storytelling is what we have to make sure is consistent with folks yeah. You know, because naturally we tell stories. It's just what kind of stories are they? Are they the authentic ones? Are they the true ones? Right. What kind of stories are they? But we naturally do it. And that's that's the most human thing that we can do. Yeah. That's how we as a civilization gotten to this point. We've had to tell tales of the wonders and glory and sieges and battles of of victories and and in order to learn lessons. Absolutely. And there's so many stories at UNCW that all of us have <laughs> that I, I think can definitely help um, the ones to come. Thank you again. Yes, thank you for having me and uh, go Seahawks. Go Seahawks. <laughs> go Seahawks. <laughs>